It's time for the Crunch Time Plays Podcast, where we talk all things sports from the collegiate level all the way up to the pros. And now, here's your host, Bennett Ganey. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another edition of Crunch Time Plays. You can find the show on Twitter and Instagram at Plays Crunch, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Shotgun726. And whether you're watching on YouTube or or listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify, just thanks so much for joining us today. And we got a jam-packed show for you. We're going to talk SEC football and basketball with the co-host of Three Man Front and the co-creator of the Paul Feinbaum Show, Mr. Pat Smith. Pat, what's up, brother? What's going on? How's everything in South Carolina on this beautiful day? Hey, everything's going great, and just thankful to get a little bit warmer weather. I got a uh, I got a buddy that's uh, in law school in Omaha at Creighton, and Oh, they've been having some, they've been having some warmer wet or cold weather up there. So just thankful for the, the warm weather here in the South. Absolutely. Nothing like living in the South. There's no doubt about that. The, the Southeast is where we want to stay. That's where we grew up and that's where we want to stay. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. All right. We've got some uh, Alabama stuff to start off with for you. Sure. Wanted to ask you. Was this past year's team the the best team that Nick Saban's had, or or is it? I know it's hard to compare because we're going into different eras of college football. You know, when they were winning championships before, we were in more of a defensive phase, and now mm-hmm. we're in an offensive phase where guys are going two hundred miles an hour and and scoring forty five points a game. Just, I know it's hard to compare, but in your opinion, is this the best team that Nick Saban's had? Yes, it is. And and the reason I say that is because back in 2009, when Alabama won its first national championship under Nick Saban, they were known for defense. Uh, obviously, the offense had a Heisman Trophy winner. They didn't throw the ball a lot outside. Yeah, they had Julio Jones, but they didn't put up near the numbers, which you saw this last previous season. So for me, it was the the whole team this season. They they had enough defense to where when they had to have a stop, you saw what they did in the second half against Georgia. But the offense was just unstoppable. I mean, when you can average that many points per game, when you can march down the field in a minute and a half, two minutes, that was a lifetime back in 2009. Now, again, they had another team uh, when they lost to Clemson down in Tampa when Clemson won their first national championship. That was a very special team, too. A lot of people wanted to compare that team with the 2009 team. But looking back, I would have to say what we experienced this last season with all the issues with COVID-19 with all the things that this football team had to overcome to win as many games in the SEC as it did, winning the 10 games more than any other team in the SEC, and then you win the SEC championship the way they did, and then do what they did to Notre Dame and to Ohio State, I would put this team as the best Nick Saban team he's had in Tuscaloosa. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly would too. I mean, you know, a lot of people you know, think it's difficult to compare, but I've – I don't really think it's it's too much of a of a contest there. Just wanted to ask you. I got a two part for two parter for you on Nick Saban real quick, and then we'll mm-hmm. get into some other stuff. But his ability to be able to adapt, whether it's whether changes in his players or changes in his coaching staff, and you know, he's got a heck of a coaching tree now. And just what about um, what a, what does it say about him that he's able to do that the way he's adapted over the years and Looking at his coaching tree, it's getting pretty big now. A lot of guys are having mixed results. You know, you look at Jeremy Pruitt and Will Muschamp, they're not having – didn't have as great a success being head coaches. But then you look at guys like Kirby Smart and Jimbo Fisher, they've had great success. So taking the Nick Saban formula and kind of forming it to your own, what 
what types of abilities do you see in Kirby Smart and Jimbo Fisher to be able to do that? Well, here's the thing about Nick. And, uh, you know, he used to have big linemen. He used to have guys on the defensive front that would plug the gaps. And then all of a sudden, what Hugh Freeze was able to do to Alabama in back-to-back years at Ole Miss, he saw real quick that he had to change. He had to get leaner. He had to get quicker. Yeah, he was quick on the outside with his linebackers, but he had to have quick edge rushers. He had to have guys that like Quinnen Williams, you know, guys that was going to be able to attack the middle and attack the quarterback in the backfield. And he decided at that point in time, he had to change his mindset in regards to how he was going to go recruit. I think Jimbo Fisher is a prime example of what he's doing at Texas A&M, how he's kind of evolved the way that he was at Florida State now that he's approaching A&M. And you're seeing Kirby do the exact same thing between the hedges. Look at the quarterback, JT Daniels, who's going to be their starting quarterback next year unless something weird happens. You saw a Georgia team offensively the second half of the season almost kind of look like what Alabama's been trying to do offensively. So I think Kirby and Jimbo both are evolving just like all good coaches in the business, you have to, to survive. And I think those are two examples of how Jimbo and Kirby has been able to do that. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And I asked Lauren Sissler about this uh, the other day when I had her on and about realistically how long Nick Saban will be coaching in the future. I know it's hard to speculate on how many years that'll be because he's really given no indication of that. I mean, he's really healthy right now. It seems like he's really enjoying what he's doing coaching football and spending time with his family as well. But what we can speculate on maybe is, is what will cause him to walk away. I don't, I don't want to ask you to speculate on how many years he'll continue to be coaching, but what are, what will be a couple of the reasons outside of help that he would choose to walk away from the game? I'll be honest with you. I think that would probably be the number one reason and maybe the only reason because he has had opportunities over the course of the last 13, 14 years that he's been at Alabama to be able to walk away when he's been on the high. And I think this last year, the people that I know within that athletic department and on that football team, they told me that he was absolutely miserable the week of the Georgia game when he couldn't be on the sideline. You you listen to his wife, Terry, you know what she said after that week. And she said, Oh my gosh, this was heck. Even Saban mentioned, if this is what retirement's going to look like, what I went through this last week, I don't want any part of it. So that was really good news for Alabama fans. Uh, If there was ever a season for him to step down, it would have been this one because of everything that that team went through. He got to the magical number of the national championships. He's already cemented himself as the best college football coach of all time. There's not a lot of other things that he, that he needs to do, I guess, to check off that list of things in his career. So to me, until he gets to the point to where maybe himself or his family they're in a place to where they just need to step back, whether it's health or whether they want to spend more time with the grandkids, those would be the reasons. But from a competitive standpoint, and you just saw the recruiting class rankings, Bennett, you you saw what happened. I mean, there's no slowing up for this guy. I mean, he is still being able to get the most five-star players, blue chippers that he's ever gotten in one recruiting class to Tuscaloosa. So that's saying that that he's got no signs of slowing down anytime soon. I want to ask you about recruiting real quick. You mentioned it, and then we'll move up the road to Auburn and talk about Brian Harson. But sure. when that, you heard, we've heard Nick Saban talk about it a little bit, and we've heard other coaches as well talk about how the, the 2021 class wasn't quite as hard to kind of nail down as much as everybody thought it was because you still had their junior film. You were able to to get them in camps before the COVID and different things like that. But what 
will really be tough is the 2022 class. And if we don't be, if we're not able to visit, you know, now the earliest we can will be June 1st. But if we're not able to visit then, what kind of difficulties does that present for the 2022 class in evaluating those players? Well, I will tell you this. Um, this class that people were able to sign this previous year, the 2021 class, hats off for you to be able to do that without getting kids on campus. I do think it's hurt a couple of programs. And I'm going to use Auburn as an example. I know we're going to talk about Brian Harson in a second, but let's just use them for example. When you go to Jordan-Hare and you go to Auburn, Alabama on the weekend of a football game, almost like every other Southeastern Conference or some ACC schools, it is magical. The town is electric. You're getting ready for kickoff. And then when you bring 17, 18-year-old young people to a campus and experience the excitement level, you know, all the things that they've got going on in regards to you know, the pageantry and, and going and being able to meet new people, it means a lot to especially like programs like Auburn. But when you can't get people to campus, then all of a sudden you're trying to recruit recruit kids through Zoom. You're trying to do things uh, um, through emails and things of that nature. And it's just not the same. So I think Auburn was one of those programs that was affected by not being able to have the electricity of being inside Jordan-Hare Stadium and being able to experience some of those type things. Um, So that's why you take your hats off to the likes of Clemson and Alabama and Ohio State, being able to continue to recruit at that high level without knowing the kids. Nick Saban gave an interview uh, about a month ago on Sirius XM to one of my co-hosts, Cole Kublik, and he told Cole Kublik that the most you know, difficult thing for him moving forward is going to be able to look at these kids that they just recruited in 2021, getting them on campus for the first time, being able to get to know them like you would in previous years and being able to maintain that type of relationship because a lot of these kids are going on reputation. They're going on limited contact. And, you know, how are these kids going to be able to react? You, you know, when you go to summer camps, you could see some of that, or you might be able to get that one-on-one time and see how these kids react when you're going up against another five stars. So it's going to be very interesting to see not only how Alabama or Auburn, but other big time programs handle this moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you. And just wanted to ask you about the the visits real quick. I know mm-hmm. 2021, you know, we weren't really able to visit anywhere. And then just thinking about the news coming today, uh, a player from Alabama as we're recording this on a Monday that Tanner Bailey, the quarterback, has committed to Oregon uh, just earlier today. And I know South Carolina has been really high on him just mm-hmm. listening to that around that program here in the state. But do you think a lot of these players that are kind of committing early for 2022, if we are able to visit, if we are able to get those 80,000 people in the stands in the fall, have the electricity that's normally there, how, what percentage would you put on uh, players that are committed right now to possibly you know, change their commitment to another school? Well, that's a great question. And one of the things that I do believe that some of these kids are considering right now is because some of these programs still do not know their official numbers for the fall, because obviously it's a free year. You've got all these guys that can get the additional year by the NCAA because of COVID-19. So a lot of places don't really know what their roster is going to look like. So if a kid goes ahead and gets that offer and he feels comfortable with it, they're going to go ahead and pull the trigger. 
I don't think they're going to wait to see if the SEC or any other conference is going to allow 80,000 people in a building. I think if they see an opportunity, they're going to take it. They're going to get that scholarship offer because Bennett, the biggest thing that's happened in college football is the transfer portal. If you don't like what's going on, guess what? I'm going down to the office, I'm filing the paperwork, and I'm getting in the portal, and I'm potentially going somewhere that I want to go. I mean, look at Justin Fields going to Ohio State. I mean, it's a myriad of people that you could bring up that's been in that type of situation. So I think a kid, if he sees an opportunity and he thinks he is going to be the number one guy, he's going to take it, and he's going to commit, and then he doesn't have to deal with all that stuff in the fall. I wanted to ask you, speaking of coaching changes, I wanted to move up the road to Auburn and touch on Brian Harson with you real quick. Sure. He was, he was really a football hire by Alan Green. He wasn't the, the political hire. That would obviously, You're right. that mm-hmm. would obviously have been Kevin Steele, but, um, and Kevin Steele, like, I would love to be making almost a million, one, a million dollars for the 51 days of work at Tennessee, <laughs> but, uh, but just sticking with Brian Harson, what, what do you think of the hire? It, it was really a football hire and, how, how big of a success do you think he'll be there at Auburn? I tell you, I love the hire. And the reason why is because it's out of the box. Uh, you're not going to someone that used to coach at Auburn. You're not going to somebody that is an SEC retread. You are going out west to a guy who knows football, who's won football games. He's also an offensive guy. He's a former quarterback. So he's going to be able to bring some of that Boise magic. He's already brought some of the guys that he's you know brought into his staff. I mean, from Mike Bobo to obviously Derek Mason, who knows defense. Uh, before he was the head coach at Vandy, he did very well out at Stanford. So he has put together a really good staff. It was unfortunate for him because of the way that he, the time frame that he got hired, he was unable to go and get the kind of recruits that he needed. Auburn was really behind the eight ball because when they got rid of Gus Malzahn, when they hired uh, Brian Harson, it was going to be difficult for him to put together a first year, really, really top notch class, but he still did, you know, extremely well in regards to what he had to work with. But I think it's a great hire. I think it's someone that's going to bring a freshness to the SEC. Again, when you start seeing all the retreads and you start seeing this, the same old people or, okay, this guy is going to get an opportunity after he's had two or three at other schools. This is really big. And I will tell you, covering the Auburn football program for over 20 years and knowing the politics involved, for them to go outside the box, that was really life-changing. I mean, that was really something special that will go down in Auburn history because it's it's never happened before. So I like the hire a lot, and I think Auburn fans in due time will really like it. Yeah, I mean, I really do too. I mean, one of the first things I thought of whenever it was announced that he was hired was you know, like, man, this is out of the box. Like, This is mm-hmm. a guy that's going to come in with a fresh mindset. He's going to be new to the South. And he he's obviously hired some guys that are – SEC kind of retreads, if you will, and maybe Mike Bobo and Derek Mason. But he's also hired some new blood on his staff with some guys that he's brought with him from Boise State. How how big is that? Do you like having the mixed staff there with some guys that really know the SEC that have been there for a long time, but also some new blood as well? Well, you said it. The the new blood is going to come in and and bring fresh ideas and new ways to try to potentially go out and recruit. you know, when you've got Derek Mason, you got Mike Bobo, that's important because you're going to be able to say, hey, I've got a kid over at Gordo High School. You know how to get to Gordo um, as opposed to, to looking up on your phone. How do I get there? I mean, so you, you've got those relationships developed throughout the Southeastern Conference footprint that obviously Bobo and Derek Mason will be able to take advantage of. But having new guys is good because that 
so many people used to criticize Nick Saban because the staff, it seemed like it was a turnover every single year, but he wanted fresh ideas. He wanted new people to bring a a new lifeblood into the program. And I think that's what those guys from Boise is going to be able to do for Brian Harson. Switching over to the, to the SEC East with you now, Mm -hmm. we'll talk about Georgia with you for a second there. Obviously, probably the prohibitive favorite to win the East this year. Do you see any teams challenging them? I know they have they have a game of Clemson, you know, to start the year. And if they have a really good year in the SEC, they definitely could end up in that SEC championship game and playing for a college football playoff spot. Yeah, I think the big thing for them will be getting through that Clemson game because that is going to be kind of a barometer to where they are nationally from a college football playoff perspective. Because we all we all think that Georgia is going to be a four, a five, a six. You know, they're going to be in the top echelon in regards to who potentially is going to play for a national championship. To answer your original question, I don't think there's anybody in the SEC East. Uh, Florida is going to have to regroup. Uh, they're going to have to reload. I'm not really sure if Emory Jones is going to be the answer. You know, you've had so much stuff in the offseason with Dan Mullen. It was such a weird year for him from Darth, dressing up as Darth Vader to, uh, you know, calling for more fans during a, a, a pandemic at, at the swamp and then having the shoe tossing incident and then almost beating Alabama in the SEC championship game. I mean, he had it all. Plus, on top of that, he has a show calls that he's he's having to deal with when it comes to recruiting. So I think Florida is just going to have to, you know, find themselves in a reload type situation. So um, I don't think that they're going to be someone that's going to give Georgia an issue in the East. I tell you the team, and I'm not predicting that they're going to win the East, but a team that continues to build. And I think he's a great coach. And I'm talking about Mike Stoops in the Kentucky football program. This guy can coach. They have done a well of a job with recruiting. They're, you know, the things that they've been doing on the field. Um, also, Eli Drinkowitz. Uh, I think Mizzou, um, you know, they're getting finally some recruits, um, something that his predecessor did not do there in Como. So not predicting that Kentucky and Mizzou is going to upset the apple cart and, and, and win the East. So I don't want to see the headlines on Twitter. I'm not calling that. Georgia will win the East. But from a team that that could potentially, you know, make things interesting for number two in the East, I would say Kentucky and then Mizzou would be the two other teams that I'd keep your eye on. Now, I'm definitely not going to put that on Twitter, Pat, because you know how that is. People are going to take whatever you say. That and little make, morsel, yeah. They're going to make it a headline, and then they're going to stuff the little thing in the article about what you really said, and I then – <laughs> And then the trust, handle- trust me, all those years being with Feinbaum, uh, trust me, we we were misquoted a million times. But I completely <laughs> understand. What did I ask you about Georgia's quarterback situation? Not not this year, but looking yep. long term. Gunnar Stockton, he's committed to Georgia mm-hmm. now, but you have JT Daniels there, and then you got Vanderveer coming in as well. JT Daniels has two more years to play. If he decides to take those two years, and then you got you got Vandergriff there and Gunnar Stotten. Could this be another type Jake Fromm, Jordan, or Justin Fields type of situation where they could try or either Vandergriff or Gunnar Stotten could transfer out? I don't think there's any question. It, it is the most difficult thing now for head football coaches to do is have that balance uh, with personnel because I think JT Daniels is going is to obviously be the guy that's going to be, you know, I would say, through the spring will probably be the number one, but then you get to the fall. And then what happens if, if one of those guys starts pushing him, 
again, the transfer portal has just opened up all these potential situations where if something doesn't go right, I mean, my goodness, look at all the transfer quarterbacks University of Miami's had within the last calendar year. You know, they're coming and going. You don't, you don't know who's currently on the roster. But to answer your question, I, I think I would be shocked if JT Daniels has two years as a starting quarterback at Georgia. Um, I think best case scenario for him would be this next upcoming season. Yeah, I mean, but he he is very talented. I mean, he could mm-hmm. really go. He could he could go on to the NFL after this year and be you know one of the top quarterbacks in the class. And right, looking at this class this year, and then wanted to ask you about a couple other the the East hires, and then we'll we'll mm-hmm. get into those uh, quarterbacks that are coming up here in in this draft next month. Sure, and get your thoughts on them. But Shane Beamer and Josh Heupel, uh, Josh Heupel there, he c- kind of fell back, you know, after after Tennessee and, and Danny White took a swing at somebody like a James Franklin or somebody like that, some big hitters, and then he obviously ends up with Josh Heupel. What are your thoughts on that? And then Shane Beamer is hired at South Carolina. It's a, a place where he's been before, a place where he knows very well and, and wants to be at. And specifically with him, how big of a deal is it that Ray Tanner went out and hired somebody that wants to be at South Carolina, not just in the SEC, but at South Carolina specifically. Well, I'll tell you, we had an opportunity to interview uh, Shane Beamer on our program on WJOX here in Birmingham, and I was thoroughly impressed. Uh, I'd never been around Shane Beamer. Um, I've heard him talk a few times uh, when he was assistant coaches at a couple different places, but his passion, it came through the airwaves I mean, it was unbelievable, you know, his enthusiasm and what his vision is for South Carolina football. And we could tell real quick that we could see why he excited the South Carolina people that he talked to about the job. Obviously, it's going to be a rebuilding situation there in South Carolina. As always, you know, before when when Steve Spurrier, I was fortunate enough to be around Steve Spurrier a lot when he was at the University of Florida. He was good friends with Paul Feinbaum. And when he went to South Carolina, he told us, he said, look, the number one thing we have to do is we have to keep our top talent in the state of South Carolina. We have to. There's not a lot of them, but when when they're there, we have to keep them a la, you know, Lattimore, you know, obviously, you know, so many of those guys that could have gone elsewhere, but they decided to stay there and play at South Carolina. He said, we got to keep them there. Well, now Shane Beamer's got a problem because back then Clemson wasn't Clemson. <laughs> so it was a little bit easier for Steve Spurrier to try to keep some of those guys there in state. So now he's got to go up against Clemson and then you got to turn around and you've got Georgia right down the road that's recruiting at a high pace. So it is going to be a difficult process, but I think his enthusiasm and I think his, his young nature is going to bring something to that program that they haven't had in quite some time. So I think that South Carolina Again, be patient, but I believe in the next few years, you're going to see South Carolina be able to compete to that upper upper tier of the Southeastern Conference Eastern Division. Now, as far as Josh Heupel goes, uh, there's no question offensively he's a great mind. Is he going to be able to mix that defensively what you have to do in the SEC? Now, granted, you've seen the offenses, uh, what Ole Miss and Alabama did this previous year. Hey, let's score 40 points. As long as we don't give up 39 points, we're fine. Well, at some juncture, Tennessee's got to play defensive football, and their and their roster is just in shambles with so many guys transferring out. Uh, the recruiting class ended up being respectable. I was kind of surprised that he was able to hold on to as many guys as he did, but I think it's going to actually take maybe hype a little bit longer 
then it's going to take Shane Beamer. And also keep in mind that Tennessee's got the NCAA, that that whole case is kind of that dark cloud over the program right now. So don't know what the end result's going to be there. But I actually think that that South Carolina will be more competitive potentially than Tennessee. One of the things about recruiting in South Carolina, I know back, you know, back when Steve Spurrier was here, we had a – or you signed Mr. Football in South Carolina for – for four or three or four consecutive years when in Gilmore and, and Lattimore and Clowney and those yeah, were Clowney. all, mm-hmm. and those were all when Shane Beamer was the recruiting coordinator at South Carolina. And even, and the, but the challenging thing is for especially 2022 is a lot of the upper talent, upper tier of talent in South Carolina this coming year is in the upstate where Clemson is. And even though Clemson's recruiting on a national level now, which right. is which is ways that, which is they've never been able to do that before until the last few years, is still going to be really tough for him because a lot of the upper state players are going to go to Clemson just because of the brand and the name. They're not really going to give the the in state school South Carolina a chance as far as that goes. And then you know Josh Heupel. I mean, it's always amazing to me the shift that we've kind of gone through. Now, now we're, mm-hmm. we're talking about scoring 45 points a game. Oh, we just need to have a mediocre defense. Like <laughs> we, we don't need to have a good defense. We just need to have a mediocre defense. And Ole Miss certainly did not have that last year. <laughs> so, no. So well, I, well, here's a, the SEC basically has turned into the Big 12. We used to make fun of the Big 12 about four or five years ago. They don't play defense out there. Yeah, they score all these points. Well, basically, LSU and Alabama the last two years – that they've turned in to a good Big 12 program. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. I wanted to get into the, the quarterback class with you real quick for this year's mm-hmm. NFL draft. I know that we've, got sure. the draft, we've got the draft coming up next month. And Mac Jones and, and Kellen Mond and Kyle Trash. How, how high can Mac Jones go? I've seen a, m- a lot of mocks having him in the top 10. And then where do you see Kyle Trask and Kellen Mond kind of fitting into this class? Um, I think, you know, it's going to be very interesting, you know, where Mac goes. It, you know, there was someone down at the Senior Bowl kind of took a shot at Mac and said, you know what, if someone goes and drafts Mac Jones, they're going to get someone that's going to have a very limited intelligence when it comes to the playbook. In other words, he only could do certain things, and he had so much talent at Alabama that he might struggle at the next level. Well, we had Landon Dickerson on, who was the all-world center for Alabama, and uh, and he basically said that's a bunch of hogwash. That he's one of the most intelligent people you're ever going to run into, and especially what they had in that quarterback room. I and mean, think about it: Mac Jones, Jalen Hurts, and Tua Tagovailoa all in the same quarterback room just a couple of years ago. So Mac Jones learned from a lot of good dudes and had a lot of really good offensive coordinators and quarterback coaches that he had to deal with. I think Mac could literally be in the top ten. Depending on where things you know, shake out and depend on what, you know, some kind of trades, I think the highest he would be maybe, maybe eight, nine, depending on, you know, which mock draft you're looking at. Um, I definitely think he will be a first rounder, no question. Kellen Mond, uh, matter of fact, talked to him last week. Oh, what an impressive young man. Um, he overcame so much at Texas A&M and just really brought that program to a, to a new level. I think he is someone that uh, is maybe a second rounder, um, possibly a third. Um, I think that's where you're going to find Kyle Trask in regards to that. Uh, maybe um, a mid second rounder, something like that. 
Um, but I think both of those guys will have an opportunity at the next level. Again, as always with the NFL, it's going to depend on exactly who drafts you and where they are with their quarterback development in their franchise. One of the teams that I've seen come up real quick or a lot for Matt Jones is the Panthers there at eight. I know yes. Matt, Matt Rue and them had him at the senior bowl. They're really mm-hmm. high. They're really high on him. Is Matt Jones the kind of, kind of guy that can come in and start right away for a franchise? I know they've been talking about getting Teddy Bridgewater out of there for a little, a little bit, maybe trying to get a package for him to trade him off somewhere else. But I know David Tepper and Scott Fitter have kind of, and Matt Rue as well have kind of made it kind of adamant that Teddy Bridgewater is not going to be the quarterback next year. So if theoretically, hypothetically, if the Panthers did take a chance and draft Mac Jones at number eight, could he be a guy that starts right away for them? I think he could start right away. And just like any young quarterback, uh, are you going to be able to withstand the growing pains? Because there will be some growing pains uh, with what you're having to do and deal with in regards to, obviously, a freshman quarterback in the NFL. But Mac is an intelligent guy who's got a fantastic arm. You you saw his accuracy when it comes to the deep ball. And as you mentioned, uh, Rule and his staff had an opportunity to get to know him a little bit down at the Senior Bowl. So I think that would be a really nice uh, situation for Mac to go in. I think he could step in and start immediately. And with based on the way the NFL is trying to run their offenses, similar or mirror what you're seeing, the great success in college football, I think Mac would be a, a fantastic pickup by the Carolina Panthers. Talking to Pat Smith, co-host of Three Ham- Three Man Front, and wanted to move over to basketball with you. you know, we got March Madness coming up here, and and by the time the people listen to this next week, we'll we'll have a bracket and mm-hmm. and see where that shakes out. Want to ask you about Alabama and Arkansas specifically, and then we'll check in with the rest of the league that's going to be in the dance as well. But we've, we've seen a few SEC teams make runs to the Final Four in the last few years. We've seen South Carolina in 2017, Auburn mm-hmm. in 2019. Which one of those two teams has the better chance to go to the Final Four? And Alabama's really talented, but they've been injured a little bit here the later part of the year. And then Arkansas is obviously really hot right now. Which one of those two teams has the better chance? Well, uh, statistically speaking, I guess I should say Arkansas, um, just because of the fact they won their last 11 games in the Southeastern Conference. Moses Moody is a, is a fantastic electric player uh, for Arkansas, and they're a, long, they're a long basketball team. You saw what they did to Alabama and Fayetteville a couple weeks ago. I mean, they're very tough in the paint, but you got Alabama. And uh, I live in in the uh, the area code of uh, the same as Tuscaloosa, Alabama. So um, I'm going to say that Alabama's got a better shot. And the reason I say that is because defensively, they're going to defend. They're one of the best defensive basketball teams in all of college basketball. And if they shoot like we know they're capable of, see the LSU game from earlier this year down in Baton Rouge, they live and die with that three pointer. And you know you get hot. And again, you could get cold and, and you could get upset very easily. But I like Herb Jones, the senior leadership, John Petty Jr. Uh, you got Shackelford. Um, you got Quinterly, who's going to be the SEC six man. He had no points in the first half against Georgia. Comes off the bench. He has 18 over the weekend. Um, he's a three-point specialist as well. I like this Alabama basketball team just because of the the the, the way that they handle themselves. And they have had adversity, like you said. Herb Jones was not 100% throughout the year. They had a, a couple of other injuries that they had to deal with. But I think they're coming together at the right time. It was ugly in Athens. It was ugly in Startville the week before. 
But you know what? At the end of the day, it was a W, and that just builds the confidence with this basketball team. I think they're an extremely dangerous team. Now, do I think that they could potentially beat a Gonzaga or an Illinois? Because uh, those two teams, along with Baylor, uh, th- that that's kind of like almost on a different planet, the way those those guys play basketball. But I like Alabama's shots. I, I think it's going to be Alabama and Arkansas in the SEC championship, and it should be a well of a game. We've, we've, we hear a lot about analytics now. I know a lot of, you know, old school guys call them stats. We call them analytics now, just kind of a, a fancier term, I guess, with the, the younger generation. And also, you know, a lot of the older coaches are adopting it as well. With Nate Oates specifically, we saw the, the picture on the court, that the practice court that a lot of the guys posted on social media, I think it was last week, where they had the one point from the free throw line out to the arc and then a layups two, and then a regular three-pointers three, and then kind of NBA range is four points. Mm-hmm. And the analytics would tell you that the the best two shots are layups and threes. Where, what have you kind of seen from, from that team specifically in adopting Nate Oates' strategy there? Well, let, let's go back to the game this weekend, previous weekend against Georgia. Uh, they were behind, fell behind by 14 points to Georgia. They weren't shooting the ball very well from the outside. So about the last six to eight minutes of the first half, you notice that Herb Herb Jones, uh, not the typical point guard, but he plays point for Alabama. They decided to spread everybody out. It was Herb Jones one-on-one taking it to the hoop, dishing the ball back outside. They had success, went down, I think, by six at halftime. And then the second half, they came out, went on like a, a 21 to two run against Georgia. And what happened was they changed the way that they attacked the basket. They kept taking it into inside the paint instead of hitting the perimeter shots. I think that was huge for Alabama to show teams that look, we're not just like Loyola Marymount from years ago where we're going to, you know, run and gun all the time and just pull up for three pointers instead of taking layups. Alabama can take it to the hole. They do have a good post game when they want to be dedicated to that. So I think that's what you see with Nate Oates. That adjustment, again, I know it was Georgia. I know it wasn't Arkansas. I know it wasn't Gonzaga. But it was a good adjustment on the road for a basketball team that looked hapless at times in the first half. I mean, they turned the ball over 22 times. It was tied for the most of an Alabama basketball basketball team this season. But they were able to overcome that, and they were able to make those halftime adjustments. And And that's what I think you see the most in Nate Oates and what he does as a head basketball coach. I want to ask you about Tennessee and Florida. I know there's some mm-hmm. – They've been kind of sputtering a bit uh, as we move in as we move into the to the tournament here in the field of sixty eight as we get close to that coming up. But how how realistically how far can a couple of those teams go? And and do you think there's they're sputtering down the stretch? I mean, it kind of reminds me of, of South Carolina a little bit in twenty seventeen. They were sputtering down the stretch, and then all of a sudden they got hot, went to the final four. Do you envision kind of? maybe one of those teams getting hot at the right time and making a run? Unfortunately, I don't. And and the reason why is because the inconsistencies that you've seen from Tennessee, from Florida, from Mizzou, and even LSU at times. LSU doesn't play defense. Uh, granted, they scored 86 points this previous weekend against Mizzou, but they're also playing a Missouri team that at times have lapses on offense, excuse me, on defense. Um, Florida is just a team that just completely bewilders you. I mean, you look at the first half they had against Tennessee and Knoxville on Sunday, 
and then they come out in the second half and absolutely get blown out. Tennessee is just not prolific scoring. They're a good defensive team, but they just can't score. That's why to beat Alabama or Arkansas in this upcoming SEC tournament, you've got to be able to score. And that's the problem I see with LSU because you're not going to play defense, which means Alabama and Arkansas is probably going to score a bunch of points. Florida, you see the problems that they had at Tennessee. And Tennessee, again, they can't score. They can defend you, but they just can't score a lot of points. So to answer your question, I would love to be able to tell you, yes, that I think those two teams could be or find themselves. But let's take a look at Florida for a second. Florida currently, and a lot of the bracketologists, is a nine seed. A nine seed, okay? Think about who they've got potentially in their second game of the SEC tournament. It would be a rematch against their Sunday opponent, which was Tennessee. What happens if they end up, you know, losing that game or, Lord forbid, the game before they're playing the winner of Texas A&M, who gave Arkansas a good run, or Vanderbilt, who at times Vanderbilt has looked like an absolutely different and good basketball team. So Florida's a team that I think is teetering right now. Uh, I think they're proverbial on that fence. Now their net rankings, their Ken Palm and things of that nature is very strong. So I think they're going to make the tournament. But for a team that's going in the wrong direction, in my in my mind, or trending in the wrong direction, that's Florida. I'm going to ask you about Auburn and uh, Sharif Cooper real quick. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's only played about half a year. He was in Oswald for the first half. But a lot a lot of mock dra- early mock drafts that I've seen for the NBA have him possibly being a top 10 pick, a lottery pick. Do you envision him coming back or, or should he come back? Um, one, I don't envision him coming back. Two, he shouldn't come back. If you are a top 10 pick with that kind of talent, what is the reason to come back? If you're worried about getting your degree, you can come back and get your degree at any point in time You know, moving forward. Um, but he is an ex- extremely talented, gifted athlete. Still kind of bewilders us here in the state of Alabama that he was obviously out the first 11 games of the season uh, before the NCAA said, oh, okay, well, come on, you know, play. You know, gave no real reason why they set him out, but he missed 11 games. And then, of course, the back end of the schedule, he was injured and unable to perform. But when he was on the court, he was one of the most, if not the most exciting basketball player in the SEC. And you can you had glimpses of him and what he would be able to do at the next level. So I don't think he should come back. And most people around that Auburn basketball program tell you that he's probably gone. Auburn's got a really good recruiting class coming in. Bruce Pearl does a fantastic job recruiting. They've got a McDonald's All-American coming in along with a, a very good class. So, yes, they would love to have him back. And if he does come back, Auburn will be one of those teams easily will be probably pick to finish one or two in the SEC next year and maybe be an outside shot team for the for a Final Four. You mentioned uh, we'll get into Auburn and, and Bruce Pearl. Do you expect any further penalties from the NCAA regarding their case? I know they're kind of debating on Arizona right now with Sean Miller and they're self-imposing a postseason ban as well. Same with Auburn. Do you expect any kind of further penalties for Bruce Pearl? And no. Auburn? No, I do not. No, I think what they did this year by saying, look, we're going to take the postseason ban. We're going to do this now. They're going to get it out of their system. And I think the NCAA is fine with that. And I think with everything that Auburn has done behind the scenes, uh, obviously the people that were involved in some of these type things, they were penalized. Auburn's in the go. I mean, they'll be full steam ahead moving forward. Again, you got Will Wade who continues to coach basketball for LSU, and it continues to leave us all just – bewildered like oh my goodness if this guy can be on tape saying what he did 
and he's still coaching and about to go to the NCAA basketball tournament. But meanwhile, you know, Bruce Pearl in the Auburn program has to say, oh, we can't play this year. Not that they'd be good enough to play because obviously they're under 500, but going ahead and, and getting that out of the way, I think it's good for Auburn. And uh, so next year will be the year that I think you'll see really see Auburn be able to take that next step. It baffles me that Will Wade is still the head basketball coach at LSU. I mean, just, just I don't. Like, I I I know Bennett. I mean, trust me. I mean, we on our on our radio show when we bring up the LSU basketball program here in Birmingham, we're we're just all like, you've got him on tape. Like, what 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 is the deal? Like, I mean, how can you defend that? But anyway, stranger things have happened. <laughs> that's awesome stuff pat and one of the things a lot of people don't know about you and uh, a lot of people do but some people don't and you're the co-creator of the paul feinbaum show you spent a lot of time with paul you have any couple of, of funny stories couple nuggets that you're willing to share with the audience well um well i could i could always tell you you know the behind the scenes story of the the uh, tumor's corner uh, tree poisoning situation but that that story is uh, always gets a uh, it's kind of an old one, but uh, I'll give you an Urban Meyer one because this is this is this is one of my uh, favorite uh, Urban Meyer uh, stories. So back in uh, 2010, you know, Urban had retired, and Urban was working for ESPN. Uh, so, needless to say, on our radio program, uh, Paul was was pretty tough on Urban Meyer, especially the way that Alabama beat him in the SEC championship game in 2009. Urban retiring, you know, it was a health reason. So he steps away Then he goes and works at ESPN. Well, during the 2010 football season, we continued to hammer Urban Meyer pretty heavily. Now, again, Auburn had Cam Newton. And of course, Cam Newton came from Florida, had a, had a history, you know, with Urban Meyer. So we, we kind of turned up the heat all season long about Urban Meyer. And so that year, of course, Auburn gets to the national championship game in Arizona against Oregon. So Paul and I, we're out there for about a week uh, doing their radio show. And so we're invited by the then PAC 12 commissioner, Larry Scott to come to a cocktail party. And it was at the Biltmore hotel there in Phoenix. And so we go over there and um, we're enjoying our time around with all these PAC 12 guys and we look outside and we notice that a huge area is being blocked off that ESPN is having their own cocktail party uh, for the BCS uh, championship. And so Paul sees somebody that he used to work with years ago and he said, hey, let's go out there. Let's let's go uh, you know, see so and so and you know, chit chat for a few minutes. And so we go out there and lo and behold, I look over my shoulder and I see Urban Meyer and his wife. And I said, hey, Paul, just want to give you a heads up. He said, Urban Meyer. He goes, are you kidding me? He said, no, Urban Meyer. And he is staring you down. And we're like going, oh, my goodness. And then all of a sudden, Paul's back's turned to him. I'm looking over Paul's shoulder. I could see what's going on. And his wife, Urban Meyer's wife is making a beeline for us. Now, Urban is staying back, but the wife is coming towards us. And I said, Paul, do not look now, but, but Mrs. Meyer is, is, is coming over right now. He goes, are you kidding me? No, no. And about that time, she taps Paul on the shoulder and she says, you don't know me, but I know you. And Paul goes, oh, hello, Miss Meyer. How are you? I, I've heard all this stuff that you said about my husband. And at this point in time, Bennett, I'm thinking we're about to have a national incident here. Like 
Paul Feinbaum is about to get beat up by Urban Meyer's wife. I mean, she she is she's acting furious. Now she's not acting crazy, but she's just you know she's got that look on her face. And then about that time, Urban is walking that way, and I said, "Okay, well, this might be good. Hopefully, Urban can can kind of diffuse the situation." So Urban walks up and he says, "What is my wife telling you?" And then and before Paul got anything out of his mouth, Urban says, "Both of them start dying laughing." They they had they had seen Paul walk out there and they immediately said, hey, let's go have fun with Paul Feinbaum. So to Urban Meyer's credit, Urban took all the criticism. He took all the beating that we would give him on a daily basis on the radio show and him and his wife decided to have some fun with it. And at that point in time, I got a new respect for Urban Meyer just because of the fact that that Urban was cool and, and he understood it. And plus, he was getting in the media at that time, at least for a couple of years before he decided to come out and, and go to Ohio State. But uh, but that's just one of, of many instances, Bennett, when when you go out with Paul Feinbaum, uh, whether it's uh, Bourbon Street or whether it's at an Iron Bowl or whatever the case may be. In that case, it was Phoenix, Arizona. You always kind of got to watch your back. <laughs> and a, pre, a premeditated attempt there by Urban Meyer and his yeah. wife to, to kind of heckle with Paul a little bit. That That's an awesome story and yeah. awesome, awesome stuff today, Pat. You're you're a great follow on Twitter. You do a, a great, it. you do a great work there at Three Man Front with with Cole Kiewit and Landry Roberts and those guys. Tell everybody where they can find you on social media and what you got coming up, Three Man Front. Absolutely, I appreciate it, Bennett. I had a great time uh, talking today, talking SEC and all things. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Pat Smith Radio. You can hear us weekdays ten to two on WJOX in Birmingham. That's ninety four point five FM, or you can go to JoxFM.com and you can listen or download the app and listen to us each and every day. It's myself, Cole Kublik from the SEC Network, and Landrum Roberts. So we have a good time, and and we got SEC basketball this week. We're looking forward to talking to, and of course, spring ball is already happening down in Gainesville. Alabama and Auburn will be hitting the practice field soon. So we're hoping and we're praying for a very safe and healthy 2021 when it comes to college football. No doubt about that. We're hoping for for 80,000 and at different places. We're hoping for 100,000 at at Kyle Field and and Bryant-Denny this fall. And certainly wish you the best, Pat, and stay safe and well. And we'll talk to you soon. And we'll bring up some more more fine bottle stories here later on. That sounds great. Thanks, Bennett. I appreciate it very much. All right, that was Pat Smith. You can find him on Twitter at Pat Smith Radio, and make sure to listen to Three Man Front with Pat and Cole Kubit and Landrum Roberts. They do an awesome job over there, and they got some awesome guests as well, just like we do right here on Crunch Time Plays. Thank you so much for checking out Crunch Time Plays today. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you like. Subscribe to the all-new Crunch Time Plays YouTube channel. We've got the best in sports media players and coaches from football, basketball, baseball, golf, and NASCAR. So you don't want to miss a single episode. We're just so happy to have you on board, and we'll talk to you next time right here on Crunch Time Plays. God bless everybody.